0: Father God, speak to us this morning through your word. Use even my words to glorify your own name. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, Christmas was only a few weeks ago. And even now, if you walked up to somebody in the street and asked them to recount to you the story of the birth of Jesus, they'd do a pretty good job. They'd get most of the details there. You'd have Joseph and Mary. You'd have the stable. You'd have the shepherds. You'd have the wise men. That's not bad. What you'll get along with that is a lot of misinformation, some of it being popular belief, some of it being opinion, and some being just plain wrong. Now, if you asked someone who called themselves a Christian the same question, you'd be likely to get a similar response. See, it can be hard to tell fact from fiction or truth from hearsay. In fact, there's a bit of an experiment. Let me read to you something you might expect to hear if you ask someone this question and we'll see just how much of it is actually true according to the Bible. Here we go. Mary, who was riding on a donkey, and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem and can only find accommodation in the stable. The baby Jesus is born and placed in a manger with animals all around and the little drummer boy is sitting on the floor nearby playing his drum. Angels are present singing above the snow-covered roof and a solitary bright star is shining on the stable. Three wise men who followed the star arrive and present their gold, the gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Shepherds lead their sheep in the fields and have come to see Jesus. Yet despite all this commotion, Jesus does not cry. Now how much of that is actually true according to the Bible? Well, I don't know if you picked it, but the very first thing is there's no mention of a donkey. There's no mention of any transport of any kind. So that's not necessarily true. There's certainly no mention of a drummer boy that comes from a Christmas song. So he wasn't there. A snow covered roof. Well, as soon as they had to go to Bethlehem for a census and had to travel, very unlikely they're going to call a census at a time when travel was difficult. So it's more likely to be in a warmer month rather than a colder month. And, although this is a point of conjecture, there is no mention of the wise men in the stable. That we heard they followed the star and they went and saw Herod. Some people don't even believe he went to Bethlehem, but certainly there's no mention that they were in the stable. And there's not only three wise men. There's no mention of how many wise men there are. We mentioned three gifts, but there's no mention of three wise men, just a number of Magi. And of course, the last one being, Jesus not crying. That's just from a Christmas carol. Him being born like we were, there's every possibility that he did. <clears throat> All right, so granted, these are fairly minor details. So in, in the whole scheme of things, does it really matter? Well, the thing is, if we're not able to pick out the minor things doesn't make picking out the major things any easier. It doesn't even make it more likely. And if, generally speaking, Christians get this wrong about the birth of Jesus, then what about his death? Did they get something wrong there? Well, today we're going to look at one major claim surrounding his crucifixion and determine from the eyewitness testimony of Matthew whether or not that is actually true. And that claim is that Jesus died for sin. Now before we can do that, we have to understand what it means when we say Jesus died for sin. Now if you were here last week, you would have heard Ray go into great detail about this. But as a quick recap, let's go through it. First of all, a definition of sin is quite simply disobedience to God. How do we know how we've disobeyed God? Well, most of you know some of the Ten Commandments. You shall not lie, you shall not steal, you shall not covet You shall have no other gods before me. You shall honour your mother and father. There's just a few. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we haven't kept them perfectly. We've broken each one of these. In fact, we've broken it more than once. We would have broken them knowing that we've broken them. There have been many other times we didn't even realise we'd done it. All right, so we're not all perfect. So why does that matter? Well, God is holy. And a definition of holy is sacred or set apart or free from sin. See, because God is holy, he can't allow any sin to abide. He must punish every sin. Now, because we have all sinned, we've all broken it, we're all guilty of this sin. We're all guilty of that punishment. Or deserving of that punishment, I should say. Now, claiming that Jesus died for sin is saying that Jesus' death has paid the punishment for sin that we deserve if we repent and believe. Also, it means that Jesus was perfect. Otherwise, he too would need to pay for his own sin. He'd need to be punished for the things he did wrong. Now, this is a massive claim, if it actually is true. So if it's true, then Jesus' death becomes the single most important event in all history. Now, there's no lack of corroborating evidence around this claim from the Old Testament prophecy to the letters of the apostles. But think about it. If this was actually true... Surely something this important must be mentioned in the recount of his death, in the eyewitness telling from Matthew. So let's open our Bibles and take a look at what Matthew has to say. Matthew chapter 27, starting from verse 26, it's on page 987. The first thing we're going to find out is that there can be no doubt that Jesus suffered. Read from verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them but he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Now the word flogged there is translated as scourged in both the King James Version and the ESV. See, to scourge someone you had to use a whip with multiple tails, and these tails were intertwined with metal and pieces of bone. And Jesus here had been scourged. As you read on, we see there's more punishment handed out to him. Verse 27 and following. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. That's around 120 to 200 men. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again i'm not sure what picture comes to mind when you think about jesus with the crown of thorns or even his crucifixion surely if you've seen some paintings or sculptures you'll tend to see that the crown of thorns is placed around his brow and there'll be like one single drop of blood coming down but his face is still angelic but that's not the picture we're seeing here see that he's being beaten here by <clears throat> the soldiers in the praetorium now The word staff here again is translated in the King James Version and ESV as a reed, so it's not as if they're bludgeoning him, it's more as if they're caning him or whipping him. Now I don't know if you've ever seen a boxing match go the full distance between two fighters who are evenly matched, but by the end of the twelfth round both fighters' faces are puffed up so much so they can barely open their eyes, and they've usually got cuts above the brows and their nose and blood covering their face. And this is when they're hitting each other with padded gloves. Imagine what Jesus' face looked like here, having a crown of thorns rammed upon his brow and then beaten again and again with a staff across the head and across the face. There's no single drop of blood. There's no angelic uh, look on his face. In fact, as we read on, Jesus was so weak, he wasn't able to carry the cross as a result. In verse 32, As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now if this isn't enough, to top all this off, and this is all before he's been crucified, Jesus refuses to accept something that dulls the pain. We read in verse 34, There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Now gall is a herb that was widely used and widely believed to be a pain-killing narcotic, even a poison, to lessen the pain and to ease the passing. Jesus refuses this, so his suffering was great, even before his crucifixion. But so far from what we've read, there's been no mention of sin. Let's read on and we'll see what else we have. As we do read on, We come to the conclusion that there was no doubt that he was mocked and ridiculed. We've already read how the soldiers put a crown on him and put a robe on him and mocked him openly and spat upon him, but there's more to come. We have people mocking who passed by from verse 39. Those who passed by held insults at him, shaking their heads. The chief priests joined in, verse 41. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. That isn't enough. Even the rebels who were crucified with him mocked him in verse 44. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. But there's something in what they say which is a little unusual. Not quite what you might expect. See, when it comes to mocking, the, the, the picture that comes to my head immediately is of a referee at a football match. Now, if you've ever been to a football match and the referee makes a mistake... The crowd openly mocks the referee. In fact, the worse his performance, and the bigger the occasion, the worse the insults get. So much so that on occasion he needs a police escort from the field to keep the crowd from from, from hurting him. But is that the kind of mocking we see for Jesus? Well, let's see what they say. The passers-by, in verse 39, it says, Those who passed by held insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Well, they're not mocking him for something he'd done wrong. They're not mocking him saying, Serves you right, you thought you'd get away with it and now you're getting what you deserve. No, they're expecting something unusual. And this continues in the similar taunts we see from the chief priests. Verse 42, they say, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. They're expecting something miraculous. They're expecting to see something unusual. And we're told that even those who were crucified with him did it in the same way. In verse 44, in the same way the rebels who were crucified with him heaped insults on him. See, there are other examples throughout this gospel of this expectancy around Jesus' death, of expecting something Amazing, miraculous to happen in verse 36 we read this and sitting down they being the soldiers kept watch over him there Okay, well that seems like a nothing verse they sat down and watched over him but if it's a nothing verse then why did Matthew mention it I mean surely they would have known there were soldiers there who would watch over those to make sure those who were crucified were actually killed to take down the bodies so why mention that they were there keeping watch over them well, I want to suggest to you the reason why he's saying that is because they too are expecting something miraculous. Or if not, they're there to report to somebody who is expecting something miraculous. Perhaps even Pilate himself. It's not mentioned for no reason. And yet there's more about what we see from people and what they're expecting later on. Verse 47, if you if you come down to that for me. We read, When some of those standing there heard this, Jesus crying out from the cross, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on the staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. They are expecting something miraculous. And yet despite the mocking that we've seen, the ridicule, despite the expectancy of something unusual, miraculous, there hasn't been any mention of sin. So let's read on. And as we do, we see that there are unusual, extraordinary, and perhaps even supernatural happenings around Jesus' actual death. So read from verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Now what was this darkness? Well, the first thing you might think of is it's just cloud cover. Some clouds had come over, it had gotten a bit dark. But this is not an unusual occurrence. And if it was just cloud cover... Surely Matthew would have said that. No, it's not cloud cover. So what else could it be? Perhaps it could be a solar eclipse. But that too is being ruled out. Remember that Jesus is being crucified at the time of the Passover. And the Passover is celebrated at the time of a full moon. A solar eclipse can only ever happen at a time of a new moon, not a full moon. So it's not going to be a solar eclipse. But let's just think for a moment and say, okay... Maybe they got their dates wrong and they celebrated the wrong time and maybe Jesus didn't get crucified at the Passover. Maybe it was a solar eclipse. Well, it still can't be. See, I lifted this piece from Wikipedia. Listen to this. On July 22, 2009, we saw the longest total solar eclipse during the 21st century. It lasted a maximum of six minutes and 39 seconds off the coast of Southeast Asia. Six minutes doesn't quite match up to the darkness we have here covering over the land for three hours from noon until three in the afternoon. Now there is something unusual and extraordinary happening here. Something supernatural. And there's more. We read in verse 50 that when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Well, there's two things here. The first one being a loud voice. Remember that Jesus had been up all night the night before. He'd been arrested taken at dawn to Pilate to be uh, sentenced to crucifixion. He was scourged. He was beaten so weak that he couldn't carry the cross. He refused to take gall to dull the pain. And he'd been hanging on the cross here for three hours. And yet he cries out in a loud voice. Well, maybe it's just his death cry. Maybe it's just his last bit of strength before he dies. But it's not the first time he's called out in a loud voice. Verse 46, if you go back there with me. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. There it is again. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still has the strength to cry out in a loud voice more than once. And there's more to this. Again in verse 50 at the end, after he cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. See, the inference being here is that his life was not taken from him, that he wasn't killed but that he gave his life up. Something certainly unusual about his death. And there's still more. In the latter part of verse 51, we read, The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Earthquakes, tombs open, and holy people raised to life. Not something that happens every day. In fact, as a result of all this surrounding his death, even one of the most hardened observers, someone who would have seen many crucifixions, the centurion, has this to say in verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God! Yet, even without all, the, even with all this, these extraordinary happenings surrounding Jesus' death, there's no mention of sin. Or was there? There is just one verse we haven't dealt with, and that's verse fifty-one. Read it with me. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What a strange thing to say! I mean, we have darkness, we have earthquakes. We have tombs open and people rising from them, and Matthew mentions a curtain. Now, I don't know if your bedroom curtains are anything like mine, but if you open your curtains too quickly, chances are you'll rip them anyway. So why mention this at all, in light of everything else that's happening around Jesus' death? Well, this was no ordinary curtain. It wasn't a curtain in your bedroom or in your lounge room. It was the curtain of the temple. Now the King James Version translates this as the veil of the temple. So it held a specific place and a specific function within the temple itself. Now just briefly describing the temple, the temple had many layers. So you had the outer courtyard where people could approach. Within that you had the inner courtyard which contained the altar and the basin. The only people that allowed in past this layer were Jews who were ceremoniously clean. <clears throat> Within this you had the temple proper, so you had the holy place, which contained the lampstand, the table, and the altar of incense. Only priests were allowed to enter this part of the temple. And then within that part of the temple you had the Holy of Holies, or the inner sanctuary. This contained the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence would rest. Now only the high priest could enter here to offer incense and sprinkle blood, and only once a year at at the sacrifice for atonement. Now the veil here we're talking about is the one which divided the holy place from the inner sanctuary, dividing the temple proper from the Ark and the Covenant where God's presence was. But why do we need a veil in the first place? Well, to answer that, we need to look back in Leviticus at Aaron's sons. Don't turn there with me, I'll just read it briefly to you, it's only a few verses. We read in Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their senses, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So as we go on further in Leviticus, the Lord says this, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, the veil, in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. See, God then goes on to describe the way in which Aaron is to approach him and prepare for the Day of Atonement. It included a sacrifice first for his own sin and a sacrifice for the sin of the people, and that blood from the sacrifice must be sprinkled in the atonement cover. See, being in the presence of God without that atoning sacrifice, without that blood, meant instant death, even for Aaron. So God does not tolerate sin, nor let any go unpunished. So to present yourself before him without atonement or cover for those sins will see the punishment paid out upon you. This punishment is immediate and final. We have another example of this from Uzzah in 1 Chronicles. Let me read it to you again. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidron, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. God cannot be approached without the blood of a sacrifice to cover sin. In order to keep people from this fate and from God's justice, God ordained that this veil be put between his presence and his people to safeguard them from his wrath. Now, if Jesus did actually die for sin, that is, being perfect, he was able to pay the full price for the punishment that sin deserves, then there would no longer be a need for this veil before the presence of the Lord. God's wrath would be satisfied and we could approach his presence. And we read in Matthew verse 51 that it was done immediately upon Jesus' death, at that moment the curtain was torn. It was done because his death was sufficient, it was a perfect sacrifice, able to pay the full price of sin. Or maybe there's an alternative explanation. Maybe it was just torn by human hands. Maybe just someone got in there and ripped it apart. Well, if you have a look at the actual veil and how it was made, you'll see that this isn't the case. See, the veil was an elaborately woven fabric of 72 twisted plates of 24 threads. But the curtain itself measured 4 inches thick, 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. According to the ESV study Bible on Josephus, it took about 300 men to hold this, and it weighed about four tons. So no, it wasn't ripped by human hands. Well, what else could it be? Well, we did read that there was an earthquake at the time of Jesus' death. In fact, the earthquake was so severe that rock split. Perhaps that split the, 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 or ripped the, the veil in the temple. But what we read from verse 51 is not that it was ripped, as in it was torn or frayed, but it was ripped apart from top to bottom, not just torn. Now, if you had an earthquake, it might be that the whole thing had dropped. That's not what we're reading here. It might be that it ripped a little bit. That's not what we read here. The full 60-foot length had been ripped down the middle in two. So it's not the result of an earthquake. Maybe then it was just arranged by his followers who had some cunning plan to make sure this happened at Jesus' death. Well, it's just... T- t- to suggest that is to forget that the inner temple itself or the holy place was only accessible to priests. These are the same priests who had him arrested and crucified. Why would they allow someone to come in and rip open the temple curtain? No, it wasn't arranged by his followers. So what's left? Maybe it was a conspiracy theory. Maybe it never actually happened at all. Maybe Matthew's just saying this so he can, uh, you know including his own legend so he can build up a religion for himself. a claim that's been thrown at him by atheists in the past. But to suggest that is missing the point here. See, the the ripping of the the veil in the temple is a huge deal, not just for the priests, but for all Jews. Their sacrificial system had been aborted. Now, it's very easy to refute if this didn't happen. If the the veil in the temple did not actually get ripped in two, then they would have simply come out and said, nope, this didn't happen, you're lying, and so we don't believe anything you say. But no one refutes this. So it's not some conspiracy theory. So there's only one conclusion, and that is the person who tore the temple was God, because the death of Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for sin. See, Paul takes up this very argument in his epistle to the Hebrews. If you turn there in Hebrews 10, and we're reading from verse 11, you'll find that on page I think it's 1,190. Hebrews 10 and verse 11. And Paul says this. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So, the reason the high priest had to offer the same sacrifice each year on the day of atonement was not to pay the price for sins, because if it was, he wouldn't need to offer it again, and again the next year, and again the next year. But Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. It could pay and did pay the full price for sin, once for all time, for the sins of those who are being made holy. The immediate tearing of two of the veil is merely confirmation of this fact. So what does that mean for us today then? Well, friends, the way is open to approach God through the sacrifice of Jesus. If you read on in Hebrews 10 and verse 19, Paul exhorts us regarding this. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance the faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So if you do not have a right relationship with God, if you don't know him on a personal level, if you find yourself distant from God, estranged from him, then what are you waiting for? The way is open. God opened it by the sacrifice of his son. Have the confidence, Paul tells us, The boldness to enter into his presence by the blood of Jesus. To know forgiveness and acceptance from a holy God. There is no more standing at a distance, separated by a veil, a temple, even a whole courtyard for us Gentiles. Believe that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. That it was enough to pay the price of your sins, because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Approach with confidence, even today. But be warned if you do not. God has opened the way to him via his son's sacrifice on the cross. There is no other way. Be careful not to meet the same fate as Aaron's sons and Uzzah. If you approach God's presence relying only on your own strength, your own goodness, your own righteousness, then the full punishment for your sins will be placed upon you. And that price is total separation from God. Do not be fooled. You may be a good person. You may have kept the Ten Commandments better than anyone else. You may be able to put Mother Teresa to shame with the amount of good that you've done, but it's not good enough. For you will come before God having spurned the way He opened for you by your very actions. You're telling God that His way was not sufficient, not good enough, but your way was. This rejection is unforgivable, and you will receive what your actions deserve. Take God at His word this morning. He has opened the way for you. Enter through the veil. Approach boldly, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is sufficient for your sin, and know God this morning the way He intended. But if you do know the way He intended, if you do know God through the new and living way, Paul exhorts us to draw near with full assurance. In verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Where are you at this morning? Are you near to him? Or do you still feel outside the temple courts? Perhaps you feel the guilt from the memory of a past sin. Draw near to God and be cleansed from a guilty conscience. Perhaps you are cherishing sin in your heart right now and are keeping your distance from fear. Draw near to God with full assurance and have your body washed with pure water. Or perhaps you are indifferent, spending time on selfish pursuits and other priorities that are keeping you from a close relationship. Draw near to God with a sincere heart. Don't put up a new veil in place of the old. God wants to be approached, to be known. Know him today as he intended. A close personal relationship opened up for us through the veil, once for all time, by the perfect sacrifice of His son, Jesus. And rejoice with great joy. let bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning and we are amazed. the salvation you have wrought for us, that you sent your only Son to pay the price that we deserve for our sin, that we then can approach you through the veil into your presence with confidence and with full assurance, having been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Forgive us this morning, Lord, for the things we have done wrong, and lead us in a close relationship with you, we pray. Amen. We're prepared for Lord's Table. We're going to sing two verses of.